Well, this week, we continue our journey with Elijah the prophet. And today, we are going to be looking at what happens when the rule of self, or just plain selfishness, combines with power and greed and no checks and balances. It's really a story as old as time itself. King Ahab wasn't the first, and he certainly hasn't been the last. All around us today, from governments to businesses to individuals, the old axiom which Lord Acton said in 1887 holds true, that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Today, we'll be looking at an episode in the life of Elijah and King Ahab from 1 Kings chapter 21. We're going to take an in-depth look at the story and what we can learn from it. And we'll especially take a look at how we have to learn to rely fully on God, just like Elijah did, and how King Ahab at first did not, but with a surprise twist at the end. I'm going to be weaving the story from 1 Kings 21, verses 1 to 29, throughout the morning message. So beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Right from the very beginning of this story, we begin to see what happens when the rule of self starts to take hold in our hearts. And the first thing that we see is that our desires become distorted. Israel's King Ahab sees a vineyard near his palace in Jezreel. Now this isn't his main palace. That palace is in the capital city of Samaria. This palace is Ahab's winter palace. For you see, Jezreel is lower to sea level than Samaria is. And so it's warmer there in the winter months, making it a much more comfortable place to have a winter palace. So it's clear that King Ahab is doing all right for himself, you know? I mean, obviously, he's the king, which comes with a lot of perks and wealth, as you can imagine. He's got at least two palaces to live in, which isn't too shabby, I don't think. But you see, he wants more. He wants to take possession of a vineyard next to his winter palace, and he wants to turn it into a vegetable garden. And so he finds the owner an ordinary man named Naboth, and he offers either to buy the vineyard for a fair price or to give Naboth an even better vineyard. That seems like a fair deal, doesn't it? But Naboth says no to the king's offer. Why do you think he said no? 
Well, it's because Israel had a really different concept of land ownership than we have today. Back in that day, the land was an inheritance from God. The promised land was a gift from God. And it had been divided up, as you remember, between the 12 tribes of Israel. Israelites were commanded to marry within their own father's tribe so that their share of the land would never pass to one of the other tribes or let alone to a foreigner. And these land allotments would remain fair over time. You can read all about that in the book of Numbers, chapter 36. The Israelites saw themselves as stewards of the land. They were not the owners. God was the owner of the land. And this included everyone, even the king. Well, sometimes when hardship fell upon a family, they had to sell the land that they worked on. But God even had a plan for how land that had to be sold would eventually be returned to its original caretaker. You see, the land was never sold in perpetuity. Every 50 years, there was to be a year of jubilee when the land would be returned to its original owner. This was done to prevent the accumulation of property into the hands of just a few people. And it also functioned as a societal safety net that was meant to ensure that people always had some land on which to be able to support themselves. You can read all about this in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. So Naboth doesn't say no to the king's offer because he's belligerent or because he's just holding out for a better offer. He says no because it is his religious obligation to say no. It would have been profane in God's eyes for Naboth to sell his land. And I think deep down, King Ahab knew this. But you see, he had already drifted so far away from God, hadn't he? That maybe he had forgotten. Because you see, he had married a foreign wife, Jezebel. And marrying a foreign wife was also forbidden by God. But lots of the kings of Israel ignored that law. And Jezebel had led her husband to abandon the God of Israel. And Ahab had become a worshiper of Baal. He no longer worshiped God. And now he also rejected the laws of God. You see, when the rule of self leads in our heart, we become greedy. We become covetous. We want more and more and more. We want whatever we want. And when Ahab doesn't get what he wants, he becomes sullen. He goes home. He sulks. He has a temper tantrum like a spoiled child. He refuses to even eat. Verse 5, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Here's King Ahab, depressed because he didn't get his way. He's sulking around like a two-year-old. And in comes Jezebel. Now, it's right about now 
that you should begin to hear that ominous music start to play in your head. You know the one, right? Dun, dun, dun. Because based on all of the other stories we know of her previously, we can just predict that Jezebel is going to start advising her husband or manipulating him and that he is going to listen. It shouldn't surprise us that it's Jezebel who enters the picture now. After all, she was the one who convinced Ahab to start worshiping Baal, the foreign god who she had been raised to worship. It was Jezebel who started killing all of the prophets of the Lord God of Israel. It was Jezebel to whom Ahab spilled the story of Elijah defeating the prophets of Baal at the showdown on Mount Carmel. And it was Jezebel who threatened to kill Elijah after she found out what happened there. And so we can be certain Jezebel is going to have something to say about this and that it's going to affect her husband Ahab. For you see, when the rule of self leads in our hearts, our desires become distorted and we begin to welcome poor counsel. Jezebel seems almost contemptuous of her husband, don't you think? For sure she seems to be the driving force of power in the nation. As the wife of King Ahab, Jezebel comes to be the queen of Israel with a completely different set of values than if she had been born in Israel herself and schooled and nurtured in the ways of God. I believe Ahab has become sullen because he knows that Naboth is right. Ahab knows that it is the, that the king is to follow God's law just like everyone else. And so he doesn't push the matter any further because he knows this. Instead, he sulks. But you see, Jezebel, she's from Phoenicia. She has no knowledge of or regard for the sort of constraints that God's law placed on the kings. Because in all the other nations surrounding Israel, the kings had absolute power to do whatever they wanted to do. Jezebel was the daughter of one of those kings, the daughter of the king of Phoenicia. And if he had wanted something that he saw, he would just take it. And it was totally legal. That was the norm for Jezebel, how she grew up. So she probably couldn't understand why her husband was literally taking this matter lying down. And so Jezebel springs into action. Verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up, eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take them out and stone them to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him 
and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. As predicted, Ahab made the mistake of listening to the advice of his wife. And it led to the abuse of power. Jezebel literally took over her husband's Ahab's royal authority. She wrote letters and signed his name to them. She sealed those letters using his royal seal. Jezebel schemed and lied to kill Naboth and to get his vineyard. Now in ancient Israel... A public fast could be called when there was a very special need in the nation, especially in times when the nation faced great distress or calamity or impending war. A fast could also be called when there was a grave sin that threatened the well-being of the whole community. But Jezebel calls a fast as a mere pretext for carrying out her evil plan. She found two scoundrels who would do her bidding. They were men without scruples, we're told. They were willing to commit perjury as witnesses to trumped up charges against Naboth. Now you see, laws in Israel were designed to protect the innocent. And so one witness bringing charges wasn't enough to bring a conviction. But two witnesses? Now that would work. So Jezebel finds two witnesses, two scoundrels. And I've been wondering to myself, asking myself, why these two scoundrels were willing to perjure themselves for Jezebel? I mean, why were they afraid of her? Did she have something that she was holding over them? Did they think that they might get a promotion in the palace if they went along with her scheme? Why were they willing to go along with the lies and the deceit? I don't know. But whatever the reasons were, power was abused by this whole little scheming band. Verse 14, then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Abe, Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. So what started as a selfish desire ends up with the death of Naboth. You see, when the rule of self takes over, our desires become distorted. We begin to welcome poor counsel. Power is abused and life is destroyed. In one fell swoop, the very principles of Israelite society have been challenged and fallen. The office of the king has been taken over by a foreign-born wife and the king has acquiesced. Neighbor has turned against neighbor. The king, who was entrusted by God with the responsibility of upholding justice, ended up perverting it. The fast, a solemn religious ritual, 
became a pretext for a sham trial and was used to commit perjury and murder. The law was manipulated to commit a gross injustice. All of the prophets of Israel had warned against this kind of thing. The prophet Micah had warned, woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Naboth was a righteous man. He obeyed God's law and he paid a price for doing so. Doing that can get us in trouble too. Jesus promised that if the world hated him, that it would hate his followers also. Maybe you see yourself a little bit like Naboth. You try and do what is right, to act righteously. You speak the truth even when it is unpleasant or costs you something, even when your friends look at you with a sideways glance. Or maybe you see Naboth's example of righteousness and you want to strive for that as an example in your own life. You want the courage to speak the truth in a culture where the relentless drive for more and more guides the decisions of most of us. Maybe we are the kind of people who stand for justice. We care about the marginalized, the immigrants, and people who are oppressed and kept down by unfair systems and structures that keep the powerless and the poor down and out. But if we are really honest with ourselves, we have to sometimes take a hard look at ourselves and see how sometimes we are more like Jezebel or Ahab. In a world where bigger is always better and there is no such thing as having too much, how far are we willing to go to get what we want, to get what someone else has? Will we cheat to get what we want? Will we keep silent about a wrong that is perpetrated against another person, even if it might stand to benefit us even just a little? We are all human. And when we begin to rely on ourselves more than on God, then the rule of self, the selfishness which lives inside each and every one of us can take us down some devastating paths. Ahab's sin has not gone unnoticed by God. He sends Elijah to hold the king accountable. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. 
I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave and free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Ahshah, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Wow. That's really holding Ahab accountable, isn't it? We serve a God whose justice is righteous and whose judgments are true. And we've seen that when the rule of self leads in the hearts of God's people that desires are distorted, that poor counsel is welcomed, power is abused, and life is destroyed. But that's only half the equation. There's also the half of what happens when the reign of the Lord leads in the hearts of God's people. And that reign begins with the exposure of sin. Elijah finds Ahab in Naboth's garden, ready to take possession of it. Now Ahab is not taking any responsibility for his actions yet. He calls Elijah his enemy, as if it's Elijah's fault, everything that has happened to him. The drought, the humiliating loss on Mount Carmel. Ahab can't stand Elijah. Most likely because Ahab because Elijah is not Ahab's yes man. He doesn't just stroke his ego. He doesn't tell him only what he wants to hear. No, Elijah speaks the word of the Lord. And Ahab is not going to get away with what has happened to Naboth. God sees. Judgment is pronounced. Don't you just love it? When justice is done, we cry out when we see an injustice. We cry out to God, and when wrongs are righted, we love it. There is satisfaction when people receive their just punishment. And the justice Ahab and Jezebel will face is severe. Ahab is going to lose every last male heir, and so his dynasty will end. And Jezebel... She will pay too. She will die. And her body will be eaten by dogs as it lies in the street. But wait. Just wait. There is still more to the story. And it is surprising. And it is the best part. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, 
I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. I have to say, in a stunning surprise, Ahab actually repents before God. He humbles himself, and the Lord relents. Yes, we serve a God whose justice is righteous and whose judgments are true. And we also serve a God whose mercy is new every morning. And when we confess our sins before God, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all our iniquity. When the reign of the Lord leads in the hearts of God's people, sin is exposed. Justice is faced and mercy is tasted. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Ahab let his pride fall and he humbled himself. Pride is the mother of all sins. Pride keeps us from God, separated from God. And to be saved, we have to be able to admit that we are sinners. We have to confess our sins and repent of them. We have to acknowledge that we can never save ourselves and that we are totally and utterly dependent on God's free gift of grace. Pride is often what keeps us from doing that. Pride convinces us that we don't need to rely solely on God, that we can somehow rely on ourselves, that we don't need grace. We Americans like to think of ourselves as good people who just need a little tweak here and there to become a little better, a self-improvement project, if you will. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says that we are all sinners and in need of forgiveness, and that forgiveness only comes from the atoning blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther the great reformer said, the only thing that resists the idea of justification of being made right with God is the pride of the human heart. Well, the good news of the story today is that the very worst people can receive God's mercy and grace. No one is beyond God's love. No one. It's all by grace. Grace alone. God's great grace is revealed here. Even when we make a total mess of our lives, God will take us back. This is God's unearned, unmerited, undeserved, unconditional love for us. It sounds scandalous, doesn't it? It's scandalous to people like us who have tried to be good all our lives because we think we are saved by living a good life. But believe me, if God's grace was big enough to forgive Ahab, then it's big enough to forgive anyone. But we have to believe it. We have to accept it. And we have to live into it more and more every day of our life. I have to be truthful with you. In full disclosure, Ahab didn't do that. By chapter 22... Ahab was up to his old ways again. He didn't continue to live in God's grace and God's mercy. And so God's judgment on Ahab is postponed, but not canceled. Ahab will die in battle. You see, when we sin, we can be forgiven, 
and made whole and clean in God's eyes, but some of the consequences of our sin we cannot undo. Like lots of us, Ahab seemed to get excited about his faith and then he slowly reverted back to his old ways again. His passion for God seemed to cool down when the pressures of life got to him. He started to rely on himself again instead of relying on God. How about you? Are you tired of the rule of self in your life? Are you ready for the reign of God to start or to come in in greater fullness in your life? Well, my friend, today, this day, let God rule in your heart. If you have sin to confess, do it. Know that God's justice is right and true. And then come and taste the mercy of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your mercies, which are new every morning. We actually thank you, God, that, uh, that in your mercy, you find us out. You see what we're doing, and you use that to call us back to you. God, we confess our sins before you right now, and we know that your justice will be right and true for us. We ask you to cleanse us by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Let us taste your mercy anew this morning, or maybe even for the very first time. Let us know without a shadow of a doubt that you are God and you are good. And let us live completely and wholly for you, relying on you and never on ourselves. For you are more than enough. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.